I'd like to welcome you to another in the series of podcasts from the JNIS. We are fortunate to have Michael Chen, who is an Associate Professor of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Radiology at Rush University Medical Center. I've asked him to discuss predictors of false positive stroke thrombectomy transfers, which will appear in the September issue of the JNIS and which is currently online. And at the outset, I'd like to thank Mike for, for doing this and uh, thank him as well for uh, the excellent work that he's done as a uh, associate editor on the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. So thank you, Mike, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Dr. Albuquerque. I really appreciate the invitation to participate. So um, reading your interesting article, I, I, I really can't think of a, a topic that is really uh, that is hotter than this subject right now. Obviously, with the prospective trials that uh, validated the efficacy of uh, mechanical thrombolysis, your paper really touches on an issue that I think uh, is really the next step. And we know that the technology is there. We know that our treatment is efficacious. But really, what uh, seems to be a huge issue now is making sure that uh, the appropriate patients get to the centers where they can be treated and that those centers have in place the mechanisms to treat these patients uh, quickly. So Mike, uh, at the outset, could you discuss a little bit about what led your group to conduct this study? Before I begin, I just wanted to acknowledge, you know, the, the stroke team that at Rush, you know, it's obviously a service that is fairly complex and it requires truly a team effort. Uh, but nevertheless, I think, you know, this, what led our group to conduct this study was we noticed over the two years after publication of the positive thrombectomy studies, a little bit of an increase in the volume of transfers, but also noticing uh, a not an infrequent rate of transfers that didn't end up going for a thrombectomy. Um, you know, I think our general approach among the stroke neurologists who received a lot of the initial calls is to really try to you know, um, minimize delays and accept transfers based really on the primarily the clinical suspicion based on the exam. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to realize that, you know, when these numbers of these potentially false positive transfers gets to a certain level, there may be concerns regarding resource utilization and process efficiency. You know, obviously during the day when a stroke is code is being called, the room as well as what everybody else involved on the team has to suspend their activities for the roughly two hours uh, and to prepare for the, this patient to come. And then obviously during off hours, patients, you know, the team member has to come in uh, to the hospital. And there are also costs associated with transfers itself, whether it's helicopters or ambulances, and also for the families who oftentimes have to travel from rural Illinois or Indiana, sometimes 50 miles away to stay in the Chicago for the duration of the patient's hospitalization. Yeah. Um, so it really was just a, a process improvement to a concern that we had based on our anecdotal impressions. Yeah. You mentioned uh, clinical scales uh, being associated with a high level of diagnostic error. And yet, um, in, in your analysis in this paper, it doesn't really seem like you, you relied on those scales. Um, you discussed the NIH stroke score greater than six and the neurological exam suggestive of cortical involvement. But do you currently employ clinical scales now, and, and has your practice changed as a result of this study? Yeah, that, that's, that's really at the heart of, you know, what we're looking at. Um, I guess just to quickly summarize the study, 
uh, very briefly, what we found over the two years uh, transferring patients from 2015 on, we had about 192 transfers and actually 54% of them did not go for thrombectomy. And of these that didn't go, the main reason was that there was no large vessel occlusion upon the CTA that was obtained upon arrival, uh, about 70% of them. And about 18% did not go because of an exam improvement and 10% was because aspects was less than six. And uh, so in terms of the predictors, the most helpful trend that we found was that the likelihood of going for a thrombectomy seemed to correlate with a higher score. In fact, among those patients with an NIH joke scale less than 10, 15 out of 17 did not go for thrombectomy. So it was instructive for a group um, to look back and, and see how we could improve upon this in terms of the clinical scales and the qualitative clinical exam, those are essentially um, using features from the exam to help inform the likelihood of whether a large vessel occlusion exists to inform the decision to transfer or not. I think, um, you know, I think we haven't used a, a, an actual published scale such as LAMS or RACE or VAN or CPSSS, uh, but perhaps use of this would uh, you know, provide additional consistency and accuracy. But at the same time, there is literature, and um, including one uh, very nice study out of Paris that looked at a thousand patients trying to validate 13 scales and found a an higher ex than expected rate of sort of false positive as well as false negative rates. And even when they tried to adjust for one, it became really unacceptable uh, in terms of either the false positive or false negatives. And so I think those study authors concluded that the exclusive use of clinical scales to triage for large vessel occlusions was problematic and, and really strongly suggested the use of brain vascular arterial imaging. So, you know, these findings do highlight that in our transfer process, we, we do need greater sophistication. And I think we have looked at ways to not rely exclusively on um, the clinical exam. And there may be some incremental benefit for using a clinical scale, but overall it, it just especially because of the results that so many of these patients did not have a large vessel occlusion on arrival, that brain vascular imaging, it really becomes a lot more valuable, at least from, from this study. Yeah. So Mike, it does seem like you're really settling down to needing to have a CT angiogram in order to make, the, to make that call, um, which is a bit of, of a difficult stretch, as you mentioned in, in your paper, um, because some of these facilities all obviously don't have that, don't have that capability. They don't have the capability to, to read those studies in an urgent fashion. So um, how do we get around that? Uh, you mentioned in your paper also that the five stroke neurologists who were involved in the transfers couldn't agree on a scale, which <laughs> I found an interesting point. Um, because I think we're, we're moving in that direction. Um, has that changed at all at your institution? Do you, do you think you still have um, your, your stroke neurology group, which, which couldn't agree on a scale, or, or are you trying to refine that process a bit? Well, it's, it's funny. I think um, perhaps it could have been worded a little differently. I, I, I don't think they have deliberately tried to agree upon a scale. Um, I think right now, most of the transfers are based on more, still more of a qualitative uh, you know, description and analysis of what's going on. I think to answer this question is really fairly interesting because I think things are changing. Um, I think 
there, there may be a lot of benefit in employing the scale more so for the conversation that occurs between the emergency room physician and the stroke neurologist. But what must also be kept in mind is that each emergency room physician may not have, you know, have variable levels of, of familiarity and, and competence with regards to not just sort of administering the scale, but interpreting, particularly when it comes to deficits like aphasia and neglect. They may not be able to perhaps communicate those types of findings clearly and accurately. So I think it's just challenging. I think tele telemedicine has, has helped in some regard, but I think all of this really just highlights, you know, that there, there's probably a finite role in terms of the value of using clinical scales or just a qualitative clinical exam when really trying to accurately triage for large vessel occlusions. Sure. Yeah, obviously it's, uh, it's not a perfect system and, and probably never will be, but um, certainly uh, your paper points out the fact that we, we need to, to continue to try to refine that. Um, one of the things that you discussed was that an improving neurological examination was uh, another reason why patients did not receive mechanical thrombolysis. Uh, one of the issues, as I'm sure you know, is are, are those patients that wax and wane that, that uh, actually do have a large vessel occlusion, but they manage to perfuse through that or around that or through collaterals and, and they continue to wax and wane. There's a lot of debate as to how uh, those patients should be treated, whether they should be um, thrombolyzed mechanically uh, or not. Um, so it's currently a controversial cohort of patients. Can you discuss uh, a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the, the number of patients whose symptoms fluctuated and improved was smaller than we had expected. We actually saw a good number of patients who happened to receive intra, you know, out of place very early, and they actually, despite a syndrome which was highly suggestive of a large vessel occlusion, actually upon arrival, you know, had a significant improvement. But I think this question highlights, you know, with regards to the transfer decision uh, process, it highlights yet another subgroup um, of patients who obtaining a CT angiogram earlier would really help inform the appropriateness of the transfer. For example, like you were mentioning, a patient with fluctuating symptoms may look clinically benign, and the primary stroke center without vascular imaging may feel inclined to admit the patient for routine care. But if there may be some nuance to that to suggest something more ominous in a CT angiogram of the brain is obtained very early, they may see, for example, a large basilar flow defect. And then despite what seems at the surface to be a benign sort of set of deficits, would probably be better transferred to an endovascular capable center to, for closer monitoring and treatment if needed, if the patient does decline. So I think, you know, that's just a, yet again, another example of a cohort of patients who are having that brain vascular imaging as early as possible really, you know, um, helps with some of these very challenging scenarios. So Mike, one of, the, one of the issues that we have in Phoenix, obviously, is that um, we're a large center with a lot of smaller centers around us and we try to, we try to provide um, a, a service to them and, and help them out. Uh, so um, it, I believe it's a bit of a fine line because you wanna, you wanna keep that relationship fostered where you're able to help the smaller centers but obviously you want to refine the process a bit uh, and um, reduce the number of false positive transfers. So that's an issue that we face. I wonder if you face that, that issue at Rush in Chicago as well. Yes, that's, that's very much um, 
two issues that we are, you know, are sort of in conflict uh, and we struggle with as well. We, we definitely want to be helpful and, you know, saying yes to everything um, may sort you know, potentially at the surface seem like you are being helpful, but you know, if the, especially if a lot of these transfers actually don't have a large vessel occlusion, which is what we found, you know, because I think we also were wondering if a lot of these patients didn't go for a thrombectomy because they had very large infarcts and would still benefit from ICU monitoring and potential hemicraniectomy. But the very fact that we found that almost 70% of these thrombectomy transfers didn't have a large vessel occlusion really suggested to us that these patients could have been, you know, and probably better, more appropriately cared for at their local hospital. And I think that type of interaction, I think, benefits all parties. And it's actually perhaps even more of a service to the referring hospital. And I think that just gives a level of confidence for them to hold on to that patient and, and take care of them as the patient needs. So I think this just calls for, you know, uh, you know, it, you know, efforts, it's probably worthwhile to further increase engagement, you know, whether it's, you know, talking about the details of each individual case, for example, in our cases, if the NIH stroke scale is less than 10, there may be a real good reason to push for a CT angiogram prior to transfer and even offline to, in terms of their workflow, you know, finding ways to, you know, circumvent the need to have a creatinine prior to a CTA for a large vessel occlusion, as well as helping with ways to really improve the technology associated with interpretation of a CTA, like you had mentioned earlier. Yeah. Some institutions like at Rhode Island, they have, you know, a, a cloud-based imaging uh, acquisition and, and immediately after acquisition, the source data gets sent to the cloud and the physicians at the endovascular capable center are able to immediately review it and decide you know, what's the best transfer decision. So hopefully those things um, will come in the future and it'll sort of change our understanding of this type of problem. Yeah, now that, that, those are great points, Mike, and, and certainly where I think uh, we're headed in the future with, these, with this kind of uh, technology and with this kind of uh, patient mandate, you know, with the, the increasing number of strokes, uh, we certainly do have to find a, a national way of, of dealing with the, these patients in, in, a, in a fast and efficacious manner. Well, in your conclusions, you state that clinical scales appear to overdiagnose LVO and, and may be responsible for the majority of our stroke code transfers not undergoing thrombectomy. Um, so where do you think we're going now in the future uh, in terms of this particular concept? Do you think that we will now need to find that perfect stroke score that um, can initiate all of these transfers? Or are you going to hearken back to one of your arguments in your paper that perhaps CT angiography really should be the, the, uh, the cutoff modality for um, transferring those patients? Yes, I think, you know, this study really served as a reality check to our initial enthusiasm where we just didn't want to miss any opportunity to see it and do things as fast as possible. But it, it's pretty clear, at least from our two-year data, that, you know, th this is not very sustainable and it leads to a necessary burden on the existing resources. So I think we just need a, a greater level of sophistication. It probably does, I think there can be value in perhaps um, systematizing our use of scales to improve sort of communication and the lexicon that's used between the referring physician and the stroke neurologist. Great. Well, I, I agree with you, Mike, and I look forward to future discussions and, and publications on this 
subject uh, in the future. So I, I'd like to wrap it up again, um, uh, thanking Mike Chen from uh, Rush University Medical Center, uh, who was discussing his article in the September issue of the JNIS uh, entitled Predictors of False Positive Stroke Thrombectomy Transfers, which is also available currently online on the JNIS website. <music>